In a moment, I'm going to dismiss our preteens to go and spend some time with the lovely Megan Linton. But before that, a couple things to say. I think we've got this coming up here. Uh, September the 29th, there is an amazing race event happening. So if you're a preteen, you need to uh, jab your parent about this now and let them know so that it gets in the calendar so that you can have fun with Megan uh, on that evening. So if you're preteen, you may go and go hang out with Megan in the upper room. She's up there. That's great. And oh, here they flee. Excellent. Who can, no, I was going to say, who can make it up the stairs fastest? Uh, that's dangerous. That's, I should, what have I done? Um, <laughs> that's great. Uh, can you go back to the announcement slide? Uh, the grief share loss of a spouse is not happening at this date, so you can ignore that byline. So just forget that it's there. Uh, we're having prayer for the church on Thursday night, and the new members class is on uh, Saturday, September 30th, starting at 9 a.m. Uh, and we are talking these weeks about who we are as a church and about uh, what we are about at North Shore Alliance Church and our values and the things that we are dug into. And if you find yourself resonating with those values and this is your church home, then I want to encourage you to consider um, becoming a member, uh, to say, I own this. This is part of me and I want to be part of this vision here on the North Shore. And that's actually, that's where we are. Uh, we are taking this, these five weeks to reflect on who we are as a church, where we are. Uh, it's a centering work, a drawing around, not drawing a boundary, not like circling the wagons, just knowing, knowing who we are, knowing the things we really stand upon. And that'll give us a sense of stability and focus and power and posture as we continue our mission. And I'm highlighting five ingredients that I want us to be baked in to the North Shore Alliance Church cupcake. Now, last week I used the illustration of the cupcake and how you couldn't exchange that flower, for a flower of God's word for anything else. And one of our intrepid congregants went home and took kale and baked it and turned it into flour and created cookies that she then brought to the staff to try. There's a video. It's awful, okay? So... So I, uh, you can look forward to kind of seeing how these things. So uh, we've got these five things that we're for, and we're leaning into what we are for rather than being labeled by the things we're against. We're not being defined by the world's opinion of us. We're, we're trying to say, no, this is the things we stand upon. And so we are a church that is for uh, the gospel and the word of God, a church that is for the poor and needy, a church that is for the North Shore, church that is for the redemption of the whole human person, and a church that is for the global mission of God. Now, we began last week with uh, the gospel and the word of God as the primary thing. If we lose the gospel, well, we lose track of where we are and where we stand and what we're supposed to be doing. So that's always the first uh, key ingredient going into this. And this week, we're going to focus on the second thing we're for, which is the poor and needy. Now, in our vision document that's been distributed to our leaders and is going to be available soon on our website, uh, we expand on this a little bit. We want people to know that we actively seek to support the struggling, the downtrodden, those without housing security, those in economic distress, and those in moral, emotional, or physical distress. It's quite a wide definition of uh, being for the poor and needy. And I'm going to take time today to expand on this at some length. Um, and I'm going to, we're going to read quite a bit of scripture together, and I'm not going to go line by line or bit by bit. We're going to highlight some of the big pieces and see how they point us toward this um, for us as a church and for how the scriptural narrative points towards the poor especially. And these, th I'm going to focus on three areas of teaching that I'm going to, I'm going to call three obligations. We have three obligations as a church community 
I think, relative to the poor and needy. And we're going to focus on each one in turn. So number one, here's the first obligation if you're following in your notes. We have an obligation to grow in self-knowledge. We have an obligation to grow in self-knowledge. Now, that may to some of you sound like psychobabble, like the kind of stuff you pick up in the self-help section. Uh, but I mean something quite specific about this because it's an essential component of our discipleship that we grow in knowledge of who we are. And let me see for a moment if I can show you what I mean. I'm going to read from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. It'll be on the screen. Here's what James says. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now, what is, what is James talking about, or what do I mean by what James is talking about here? He's suggesting that the word of God is something like a mirror that you look into it and it reflects back to you what God expects of us as his people. And so we hear the word and we receive what God wants to say to us and then we have to respond. We have to act differently and change our behavior and we have to bring ourselves into conformity with what the word says. And that's what it means to grow, for me, it means to grow in self-knowledge. You studied the word, God showed you things about yourself, now you're going to grow. Uh, and not growing is like you look in the mirror, you study yourself, and then you're like, eh, forget it, and you walk away. And so every time we encounter God's word, it's an opportunity to grow in this very specific way. Now, one of the things that the word of God speaks about frequently is God's concern for the poor. Uh, by some counts, there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible dealing with poverty and wealth and what God wants us to do with it. It is perhaps the most discussed subject in the Bible, which is astonishing. A huge amount of context for these things. Uh, I remind you that when Paul speaks about the council at Jerusalem, remember there's this debate between Jews and Gentiles about how they fit in and how do Gentiles have to obey the law or not and what is it required. And when Paul recalls this in Galatians 2, he says they asked us to remember the poor. That's what they wanted. That's what the early church wanted Paul to do. As you plant churches, remember the poor. It's interesting. It's the only moral thing that comes um, out of Paul's memory for that moment. And so this is a hugely important biblical theme, and it really isn't a matter of us versus them, uh, as if we, you know, we, we view the poor as some people we do things to. Uh, there's something important for us to learn about who we are in self-knowledge, and that's why uh, I really want us to focus for a few minutes on the very first beatitude. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Many of you know it. Let's read this together. Ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a lovely text. If you've not read the Beatitudes in a while, I encourage you to open up Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and just work your way through these eight statements bit by bit. Uh, they're funny because sometimes I think we read them in a goofy way. I think we read them a bit like your horoscope, right? So you go through the Beatitudes and you look for where am I right now and what promise do I get? Oh, my cat died, so I'm mourning. I guess I'll be comforted, right? And if you kind of do like a connect the dots to your life and the Beatitudes, or I'm suffering persecution at work, so I guess uh, this is me at the moment, and we do this, but actually, I think it's a progressive document. 
I think that the Beatitudes work one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and they all, they're all prescriptive for how we're supposed to be in the Christian life. Uh, and one of the clues to this is that the first and last Beatitudes have the same reward. Uh, the poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven, the persecuted get the kingdom of heaven, and the rewards in the middle shift uh, based on what you're doing. I've got a whole teaching on this. I'm not going to go through it at the moment. What I want to highlight is that the Beatitudes give us a kind of model for our discipleship. And on this model, step one in following Jesus is something called poverty of spirit. Are you going to be poor in spirit? If you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven, that's step one. It's kind of an arresting place to begin our discipleship journeys. Now, it's a curious phrase because Luke writes, records his Beatitudes. Luke's got a slightly different version. He just says, blessed are the poor, full stop. So why does Jesus, I think Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount more than once. So why does Matthew's account of this have poor in spirit? What's the reason for the qualification? And I think it's because there's something about poverty that we have to learn that's independent of your circumstances in poverty. There's something about being poor that's important for all of us to know, and this is part of this mirror of self-knowledge. So let's come at this from another angle. What do the poor know that the rich might ignore? What's self-evident to the poor? I'll give you a couple things. If you're really rich, you could live in a mansion alone with a gate. Nobody can bother you. No one's around you. Where do you live if you're poor? You're crowded around other people, aren't you? You're aware of how close you are to others. So wealth can isolate you. And poverty exposes the need for community. If you're rich, you could purchase basically any help you need. You can solve any problem you have that comes to you that you have with money. If you're poor, what do you do? You're going to have to rely on others or ask for help or find a way through. You're not relying on your own strength. And ultimately, the rich can pretend that they don't need help. And the poor cannot pretend that they don't need help. And I think that's the beginning of our discipleship journey, is acknowledging that if we will be poor in spirit, how desperately we need God's help and how little we can rely on our own strength coming into this. So this is the first step in the journey towards the kingdom of God, is acknowledging our desperate need for God. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to understand your need for God. That's the first step. And there's something about a spirit of neediness that's fundamental to our faith journey. And so, the word of God presents to us a requirement that we be poor in spirit. And the mirror of God, the word of God kicks in. This is God reflecting something to you. Do you know that you are needy before God? Because you can hear the word and then turn to your bank account and realize, no, I'm not that needy. And it's easy to slip away from the path of the kingdom of God. Okay, let me make this even more explicit. You've been given everything you own. You don't actually own anything. Okay? And if every single person on earth died today, do you know who would inherit it all? God. It's all his to begin with. Everything you've received is a gift. And this transforms our perspective. And so Jesus invites us to become poor in spirit, invites us to recognize that whatever economic or social area we find ourselves, before God, we are all fundamentally the same. Whether you're a president or a pauper, you are the same before God in terms of how we need him. Do we recognize our poverty of spirit? We, each of us, come to the kingdom as beggars with hats in our hands. Nobody buys, you know, at Disney, you can go 
and you can pay the express pass and you can cut the line, right? You can slip in ahead of all those smelly people who don't have as much money as you, right? Isn't that cool? There's no express pass to the kingdom of heaven. We're all equalized in this. So, whatever the case is, for us as a community, it's critical in our journey to discipleship begins with this flattening. Everybody enters the kingdom of heaven on their knees. That's how we begin. So if our church is going to be a church that is for the poor and needy, we have to begin by acknowledging our own need before God. We can't begin by thinking that we're powerful and we're great and look at all the cool things we can do. We begin by recognizing how desperately we need God. And that's the first step. How do we do this at NSA? Well, each week we're going to hold up the mirror of the word. Lift it up so that we can be exposed to what God wants from us and respond to it. What do you do in response? It's the stuff we talked about this last week. You plant the word faithfully in your hearts. You water the word by the Holy Spirit, and you wait on the harvest of God as he brings a harvest to you. And then we have opportunities to meet in small groups and small communities to challenge one another, to see, to be reflected, uh, have God's word reflected to us through our brothers and sisters. And then ultimately, partly what we have to do is we have to steward the leaders of our church so that only men and women who know their need for God are placed in positions of authority. People who think they've got it all together, uh, that's not the right spirit to bring to these things. So that's the first obligation, this obligation to self-knowledge. As we study the word and we learn our own desperate need for God and we respond faithfully to that need by humbling ourselves before the Almighty. That's the beginning of being a church that's for the poor and needy is recognizing how poor and needy we are. Second obligation is an obligation to community. An obligation to community. Now, the second way we display this need for the poor and needy, it care for the poor and needy, manifests in how we treat one another in this room, in our church as a whole. And I want to highlight two, uh, two significant texts of the New Testament for you in this. So the first is Acts chapter 2, Verses 43 to 45, the Spirit has descended on the church at Pentecost, uh, has filled the room, there's something powerful has happened, and the first thing that happens, the fir- actually the first miracle of the Holy Spirit after the gift of tongues is that rich people give away their money. Don't forget that. After the miracle of tongue speaking, the next miracle is, wow, I'm going to give my stuff away. Read with me, or look, you don't have to read aloud, it's on the screen. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. This is radical change in the economics of the world, showing up in the beginning of the Acts church. Now, this is not an early commune. There's not like a central committee who are steering, who are taking in all the funds. Welcome to the church. Please sign over all your funds to us, and now we will repurpose them according. <laughs> this is not, uh, not a central planning group for people's lives. This is not what's going on. What's happening is, is there's a sense of responsibility that's manifesting in a transformed economics. Suddenly, we're one people. We're one family, and if we're one family, we have to look out for each other. And this is the ethic that seems to be flowing through this early church. Second passage, one that may be quite familiar to you, is I'm going to read from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me highlight a couple things before I read the text. Uh, Part of this is familiar. In fact, we read this passage almost every time we serve communion as a church. It's one of the most famous passages on Holy Communion. And I want to remind you that Paul has written to the church at Corinth because they're making a mess of things. The stuff's going wrong. I mean, 
I could go through the list, and it's just, it's almost embarrassing, but they're taking each other to court, and some guy's in an inappropriate sexual relationship with his stepmother, and I mean, it's just a mess, the stuff that's going on in the church, and they're also messing up communion, and so we get to hear about how they've been messing up communion. Now, you've got to change your thinking about this, too, or maybe let me challenge your thinking. We do communion, and you know what it is? It's this lovely, it's a bit, what we do here, we've got a tiny bit of sourdough bread, and it gets, it gets kind of like soaked in juice, and then you have a little nibble, right? And then you can go back to your seat. With Some of you grew up in, ch- I grew up in churches that had uh, little tasteless, sal- unsalted crackers. Any of you ever have those? They turn to chalk in your mouth, right? And then you have, as you couldn't wait, like, you're, I'm sorry, I'm remembering this. I'm, I'm sitting in church, and I'm a kid, and my mouth is just dry and chalky as possible, but I've got to wait through a lengthy prayer over the little cup of juice before I can drink it and get some relief. And communion was an experience in misery for me as a kid. Okay? So for us, for us, we have these moments, these tiny bits of communion. It looks very much like the early church. It was a whole meal. They were eating an entire meal together. And it looks like they did it every time they got together as a church. The supper of the Lord was the supper of people coming together to eat. And so keep that in mind as I read this text for us now. So here we go. Paul writes, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So they're gathering as a community. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the supper of the Lord. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Do you see what's happening? People who have wealth are taking all the food, and the poor people are still starving. And Paul's getting upset with them. Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Now verse 23, the parts you know well. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And now the part you may not know is he comes back to the argument he has with the Corinthians. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. So what's going on here? I want to propose to you that the, the debate, the, the Corinthians uh, bringing in some bad stuff to how they do communion has to do with why Paul condemns how they practice it at the end. The meal, the common meal, was as much an opportunity to regularly feed the poor as it was a symbol of Christ's sacrifice. The communion was an outreach meal. It brought people in, into the community of faith. It gave them a place. People didn't have food security in the ancient world. So being part of the church where there was a common meal meant something really deep to people's lives. In fact, it it looks like Paul believes that the sacrifice of Christ is precisely the reason why you eat with the poor. 
it's very different communion theology than maybe we've grown up with. Now remember, we have a very status-conscious ancient world. Rich people eat with rich people, and then they game the system to make sure who's the richest and most powerful can sit closest to the head of the table, right? They want to beat it. Pow poor people then eat with poor people, right? Or poor people are in client relationships with rich people. I will, the rich person says, I will give you money and you will serve me in some capacity. You'll follow me around, make me look good, you'll be part of my posse, my entourage. And so these uh, status is driving every single relationship. And so what happens is, and there's a typo in your notes, is that the church is a place that transcends these earthly socioeconomics. Suddenly, there's a church community where none of these rules of the world apply. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor doesn't matter if you're, in fact, we actively resist the client relationships. We're just the people of God together. And so what's happening in Corinth, it looks like, is the rich people are eating the food reserved for the poor. The rich people are treating the Lord's Supper like any kind of common Greek or Roman banquet where you go to get hammered. And they're getting hammered at the, at the table of the Lord. And there's poor people who are there in the church and they're still starving at the end of the feast of the Lord. And Paul is pretty upset that they're violating the poor in this moment. And so the sin of the Corinthians was a sin against the, the poor and needy, a neglect of the people who have need in our midst. So how does this come together for us? Well, according to the scriptures, Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, as a church, we have a clear obligation for our fellow members of the body of Christ. We have an obligation to the people who are uh, in our church, centered in this room. So let me come back and review what we're talking about. We have to acknowledge our own need first. We have to be aware of the needs of people in our community. And what this makes, what this means, and this is helpful, is that gratitude for Christ's generosity towards us is the motivation for our care for others. Do you see why that's so important? Our gratitude for what Christ has done for us motivates our care for others. And that's pretty critical. It keeps us from an unhealthy fascination with the poor, right? Whether we can, they become clients to us, we can do things to them, right? Or I love, my brother Dave likes the phrase, he uses the phrase, we could pet the poor, right? Let's pet the poor. I like that phrase a lot. Uh, I'm going to read to you a quote from my favorite preacher of all time. His name is St. John Chrysostom. It's a great name. Chrysos means gold and stoma means mouth. He's John the Golden Mouth. Uh, and he wrote a lovely series of sermons on wealth and poverty. It's not in your notes, but you can follow along as I read. He says, need alone is the poor man's worthiness. If anyone at all ever comes to us with this recommendation that he is poor, let us not meddle any further. We do not provide for the manners, but for the man. We show mercy on him, not because of his virtue, but because of his misfortune, in order that we ourselves may receive from the master his great mercy, in order that we ourselves, unworthy as we are, may enjoy his philanthropy. Do you see what John is saying? The person who comes to you and says, I'm poor, that's all the excuse you need. You're not judging the person's virtue. You're not judging their history. You're not judging their narrative. You are recognizing in that moment that I am just as desperate before my God. And so what I have is yours. And when I give it in that way, I am doing it because I enjoy the Lord's philanthropy. He owns it all. Now, John got in trouble. In fact, for sermons like this, he got exiled from Constantinople because he dared to critique the power structures of his day. But he stands directly in the tradition of our scriptures. 
So every act of generosity reminds us that we are benefactors. Let me go to another passage from the book of James. He seems to have this in mind as well. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well-filled, um, and yet you do not give him, them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So if you don't visibly love the people around you, I don't believe your love in Jesus. And that's not me. That's what I'm paraphrasing James in the voice of, don't worry about it, okay? It's what I think he's saying. We're, man, the Bible can be hard, can't it? <laughs> Brings us some things we have to confront one another. So how do we do this at North Shore Alliance Church? How do we care for the community? There's two ways I see. Uh, one of them is quite informally. Um, I know for a fact and I, I love, I love this. Many of you, our members, are proactive in seeking out and helping needy people in our midst. And I love it. It gives me immense joy. And I'm not going to highlight any of you. I'm not going to put your names on the screen. I'm not going to give you points and rank you according to your Christian virtue. I just know you and I see you. And it's so wonderful. Uh, more formally is that we have a care fund here at the church which is a financial fund, a reserve for people who are part of our community, and as they have particular needs, whether they, are, they need a mechanic, or they need some housing assistance temporarily, uh, or they need some health assistance, or uh, we've got a, all these parameters, we've got a committee that comes together and talks about how do we steward this fund, and it's beautiful. I love this as well. And so we have really practical ways to assist people who are part of our community in these ways. Can we do more? Yes. But we are, doing, we are doing some, which is excellent. Now this brings us to the third and final obligation. And the third obligation I want to talk about is an obligation to mission. An obligation to mission. So neediness motivates gratitude. Our, our recognized need motivates our gratitude. And then our love manifests in practical care for one another within the community. But the work of the church always has an outward focus. It's never just about us. We're not a club that's just looking to support ourselves. We're trying to advance the mission of God. And so part of this is seeking the welfare of our city, which is what we'll talk about next week, but also seeking to share the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And for this passage, I want to go to a more disturbing passage, which is from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 25. I'm only going to read part of this parable, which is quite famous, but let's read it now. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Now, uh, points for maybe the most disturbing parable in the entire New Testament, okay? 
Um, and, and, and we shouldn't make too much of Jesus' it's a story to illustrate something important. He's talking about how the Pharisees receive faith, and even if someone were to come back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. And if you're not obeying the law in the moment that tells you to care for the poor, why are you going to believe Jesus when he speaks about the law of what God's asked? Like, there's all sorts of wonderful things happening in this. The point is quite simple. There's a rich man who ignores the sick man, and they get reversed in the next life. And so it wasn't the rich man's goodness that made him rich, nor was it the poor man's uh, badness that made him poor. Rich and poor are not moral categories in this. It's what you do with what God's given you rather than, rather than what you have been given in, in a particular way. And for us, I think we can summarize this with a simple piercing question. What are we doing about the Lazaruses on our doorstep? That's it. What are we doing to care for people who are laid up at our doorstep? And I think that's where we are pressed into mission. Like the rich man, guess what? We have a lot of power. And like the rich man, we have a lot of wealth. We can rely on our power and rely on our wealth. And therefore, like the rich man of the story, we have a responsibility. This is what we inherit. We have a spiritual and moral obligation to be a church that is for the poor and needy, an integral part of our mission to the city. Now, it's critical to recognize that we cannot do this well without a conviction of our poverty of spirit. We have to recognize our need for God first. And without that, we will help the poor to make ourselves look good or help the poor to give ourselves some good PR, right? We want that positive byline in the news. North Shore Alliance Church, a church that helps the poor, right? We want to have that... that's, you know, we could make ourselves look good. We could help the poor because we feel like it's our civic responsibility as good Canadian Christians. That's not the right reason either. What we are offering is a form of help that can pave the way to faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. Look with me at this beautiful passage in Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 8. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. So here's this guy, a beggar, blind. He's lame. He's laying his hands out. He's trying to ask for money. Uh, He's doing his thing. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us! (laughs) Great moment. And he began to give them his attention. Right, you can see it. Uh, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, the main product, this is a crude image, the main product we are selling in the church is saving faith in Jesus Christ. Promoting, selling, because we're not, <laughs> okay, forgive the language, it's not right, but the thing we are pushing is saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we offer practical help to people, not as a kind of carrot on the stick, right? Not holding the carrot out and say, hey, you'll get a little more help if you come to church. you get a little more help if you come to church. That's not the point. But we recognize that coming alongside people and coming, uh, getting to know them and inviting them on a journey and showing that we care is a way to teach them about the love that Jesus has for them, which is more important than any financial means. And so we use our finances to help people meet the king. 
How are we doing this here at North Shore Alliance Church? Well, primarily, we do it through our weekday ministry called Coffee Time. Uh, and some of you may not know about Coffee Time or what we do, and that's fine. And I had a chance to sit down with Dave this past week, and we did a little interview. And I said, okay, Dave, let's get the facts straight. I wasn't wrong about them. It was just good for us to have the chat. I said, Dave, what is Coffee Time at this point? Here's his answer. The answer is it's an accessible church service for vulnerable people with barriers to church. Coffee Time is an accessible church service for vulnerable people who have barriers to church. That's what we do every Wednesday here. Who are the people who come? Well, new Canadians show up. People who aren't familiar with the landscape and they need to get some comfort. People with mental health struggles. People with addiction struggles. People struggling with housing insecurity and even homelessness. They come on Wednesdays. They've got vulnerable, vulnerable people. How does Coffee Time help these people? Well, there are three kind of primary ways that Coffee Time helps. First is that we provide community. And the most important part of community is through spiritual friendship with these men and women who come. It's the most important aspect of this. Second, we provide practical help for people. We give away food cards. Last year, we gave away about $75,000 in food cards, which is glorious, glorious to give away. It's fantastic. Uh, exercise classes, uh, skills training like kitchen work, uh, and other practical uh, referrals to health professionals. Uh, but most importantly is that the Coffee Time points people to Jesus every week because they have worship and they have teaching and ultimately a partnering friendship on the long journey towards faith. And those are the things we do. Now right now there are 200 households connected to our Coffee Time ministry. 200 households that are connected to us. And Dave has about 30 dedicated volunteers. It's a wonderful team of people. Um, I know and love them, and I get to see them. Now, let me tell you something important. I am not talking about coffee time because I want us to pat ourselves on the back. It's really not what this is about. It's not about making ourselves look good. I'm talking about it because it's an integral part of our mission here on the North Shore. It's an integral part of our church and our community and who we are in this place. We are not here to look good. We're here to make Jesus look good. And I could point to coffee time guests and they could testify in this moment about how Jesus looks good and about how this ministry has made him look good. And I think that's wonderful. I asked Dave if he needed more volunteers. Uh, and he, sa he said to me, I could just have him speak, it's okay. He doesn't need casual people. He needs people who uh, feel a call to the long journey. And so I present that to you today. If you're someone who has a heart uh, for long and patient journeying with men and women who have barriers to church, who need time and patience and friendship, um, and for whom you may experience huge setbacks and losses and disappointments, but you feel a sense of God's call to, no, I want to I be in this and I want to be patient with this, then I encourage you please to speak to um, Dave uh, today or Ebenezer when he's here anytime. All right? Okay. I'm going to quote Chrysostom one more time, and then we're going to wrap up. Here's what he says. If you cannot remember everything, he's talking about at the end of his sermon, instead of everything, I beg you, remember this without fail, that not to share our own wealth with the poor is theft from the poor and deprivation of their means of life. We do not possess our own wealth, but theirs. Whoa. If we hold on to our resources when God has shown us how to use them, then we are robbing God. Chrysostom, you can see maybe why he got kicked out of his city. Um, 
powerful words. Let me sum up. A church that is for the poor and needy will recognize its obligation to self-knowledge, that in the face of God and who he is, we are called to recognize our own poverty of spirit, our own desperate need for God. We carry then a burden of obligation to love and serve one another in the community so that in an ideal church, no one in our community would ever have uh, a need. It's not that everyone is equal, not that everyone has exactly the same, it's that everyone is, has what they require to survive. And also then we carry an obligation of mission to the poor who are around us in the hope of bringing them to saving faith in Christ, enfolding into our community and part of who we are for Jesus. And these are the things I want us to be known for on the North Shore. That's a church that is for the poor and knows their need before God. We're going to shift now into a time of responsive worship. I'm going to invite our musicians uh, to come to the platform and take their places. Uh, and I want to talk for a minute about our worship services because there are um, some things that are just worth articulating for what we're doing. There's really, if you think about it, there's really two halves to our worship service. We have a period of opening worship that, that concludes in pastoral prayer. So we exalt the king in worship and we land on prayer, which our brother Brad uh, Boyd offered this morning. And then we shift into a time of teaching, which also lands in prayer. Uh, but this time of responsive worship is a time for you uh, to reflect and to hear God's voice and to dedicate yourself in a fresh way to the Lord. And it's a time for you to seek the partnership of prayer. I think Dan and Andrea are on. Uh, this morning, Andrea Hebner will be over here available to pray with you um, as you have need. And um, come and receive prayer and pray where you are or pray as you sing. Uh, but I encourage you to seek the Lord in a special way um, as we sing these final two songs. So let's go.